Amen. Thank you, Eileen and Nevin. Uh, we are here to celebrate the faithfulness of God. Christianity isn't a time where we come together every Sunday and celebrate how faithful we are to God. It's a time where we come and celebrate how faithful God is to us. Because even when we are faithless and unfaithful, he is faithful to us. That was well said. I appreciate that. And thanks for the, um, uh, I won't call it offering music because the offering comes later in our service. It was the pre-candle lighting music, uh, Josh and Robbie. And um, I was real curious because I don't think I've ever heard Josh play the piano And I wanted to make sure his hands were actually pushing keys and it wasn't all just Robbie because we know Robbie can play the piano, but he was playing lead on that song. Robbie was just backing him up. So good job on that. Appreciate you stepping out for that. Well, um, we are going to do things just a little bit different this morning in the way we present our offering to the Lord. And after the message... Uh, Alyssa will come up and light the Christ candle immediately after the message. And then we're going to have our time of praise and worship. And actually, that will be the remainder of our worship service. And we'll close with a benediction of come, let us adore him. And then our service will end. But during our time of praise and worship, while we're singing to the Lord, because I'm going to speak about the gifts that the wise men presented to Jesus, I thought it would be a good uh, opportunity of symbolism for us to present our gifts to the Lord. So while we're singing our praise songs, if you guys would come forward, and I think it just makes sense maybe to do the front rows first, um, come down the center and then go back on the sides and then the next row um, until we're finished. But we'll do this as we're singing To the Lord will present our tithes and offerings as a gift to him. I think hopefully we're straight on that. So hopefully you've um, you got all the money out of the bank this morning or before the banks close to come and we'll fill this basket. up. Now, this isn't a fundraiser. It is just an opportunity really for us to worship the Lord. Um, And I think it'll make more sense after the message. But we are very, very close to Christmas Day, and I know there's a lot of excitement, and it's so wonderful to see family members that we haven't seen here for a while. Some of you were raised in this church, went off, and have started families of your own, and you're back here for the holidays, and we appreciate that. It's great to see you. What are some, um, just before I jump in, what are some Christmas Eve traditions maybe that you have? So, for instance... uh, Does anybody like open all their gifts on Christmas Eve and not on Christmas Day? Does anybody do that? Okay, there's one over there, a few over there. Christmas Eve is when they open. Um, Does anybody get to just open one gift and then the rest are saved for Christmas Day? You get, okay, there's a few that do that. In my household, um, we were pretty traditional and you did not open a gift until Christmas morning. Now, we got up before it was daylight And then had to wait for mom and dad. And sometimes we tried to peek in the paper, but we were not allowed to open. And then we found that other families were allowed to open one gift Christmas Eve. And we finally talked our parents into that. So um, when do you have a uh, another tradition? Um, Do you tell the Christmas story on Christmas Eve or is that reserved for anybody? Tell the Christmas story on Christmas Eve. A couple do that. Yeah. Okay. So some neat traditions. 
Well, um, how about this one? Do, does anyone wait until like late at night Christmas before they even put the gifts under the tree? So there's no, hardly any gifts until you wake up Christmas morning and see them. Is anybody a few that do that? Yep. We, we did that for a while at our house, but there was too many because we had nine kids and it just would take too long. So we would, but we woke up to uh, lots and lots of gifts under the tree. Well, we are going to look at Matthew chapter 2. We'll be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Surprise, another Matthew message. We've been in Matthew all year. But this is just uh, an awesome passage for us to celebrate and to think about for Christmas Eve this morning. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. And then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Well, we know, because we have been in Matthew all year, that... The main message or theme of the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is King. It just practically cries that message out on every page of this Gospel. And Matthew uses the first two chapters of this Gospel to set the stage and show all the different ways that Jesus is royalty. And he goes into great detail to show how Jesus' birth just fulfills one prophecy after another where the faithful God promised that he was going to send a Messiah, a shepherd, and a king to reign and rule over his people and, in fact, over the entire earth. And so the arrival of the wise men, the, the uh, introducing the wise men into the Christmas story by Matthew is just another way to show that Jesus 
is royalty. I want to look at why the wise men came and then we'll close by looking at what the wise men brought. But what do we really know about the wise men in Scripture? Well, let's just say, let me ask it this way. What do we really know about the wise men in general? Well, we know that the wise men, there were three of them, and they were all representing three different oriental uh, countries, um, and that they were very wealthy, and that they traveled in caravans with camels. And uh, at one point in their travels, as they were following the star, they ran into a little drummer boy. And um, the only way that they could get a break from their long journey was to have a Norelco commercial. Uh, and that is what we know about the wise men. That's what I grew up knowing about the wise men, because I watched all the Christmas specials. And uh, you knew it was getting close to Christmas time when the Norelco commercial came on, the electric shaver, traveling through the snow. And that's when I would really start get, to get excited. And I would watch that commercial as I watched the Christmas special. And there are the wise men. We had it all figured out. But what do we really know from Scripture about the wise men? Well, here's... All that we know from Scripture about the wise men, and it's found only in Matthew. There came wise men from the east. That's all we know from Scripture. We don't know how many there were for sure. Uh, we don't know how smart they were for sure, although we're, we're going to get an idea about that. Um, you know, we can imagine how they traveled in caravans and the, the way of the day with, with camels and uh, donkeys and so forth. But as far as Scripture goes, that's all we definitively know. However, they are mentioned in Scripture elsewhere. And we can learn a lot, not just from biblical history, but history in general. And history tells us, tells us that these wise men were uh, magi. As I'm told how to pronounce it, I had to look it up this morning because I was taught Magi, but it's Magi. So I'll probably say both this morning just to really confuse you. But the Magi, they were real people, real wise men, and they were members of um, a priestly order in the East. And they were also like a family. So the, the knowledge that they would possess was passed down generationally. So they were a group of people, almost like a tribe people, similar to the tribe of Levi, who were priests in Israel. And they were uh, they represented many of the kingdoms in the east. They were very skilled in astronomy and astrology. So basically, uh, their endeavors were to know things and they would utilize whatever means they could Scientific things just by observation, but also cult, some of them dabbled in cultic things um, and, you know, the, the mythological things, but whatever they could use to gain knowledge. And so because they were good at this and they honed their skills, they were widely sought after, especially for people that were in power, because we all want to know things. But people in power really, really want to know things. But they learned 
these things. Some of it was sorcery. Some of them leaned more towards sorcery. Uh, some of them inquired of the gods. So it was a religious cult as well. They wanted to find out, know things from the gods. So there was worship involved as well. And they had a certain code of conduct as priests that they would um, follow. So they were highly sought out people. And anybody that was any, in any position of power in the East would want to have them on their side or would want to employ them, including the kings, princes, and nobles. So they were of tremendous prominence. We read of them in Jeremiah 39, verse 3, where he says, Nergal Sherazizer as the chief of the Magi in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the time when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and took many, not all, but many Israelites into captivity in Babylon. And one of the people or groups of people that was advising King Nebuchadnezzar at that time were the Magi. So they were known even in the days of Jeremiah. So what's the connection here way back then and then on the, regarding the Christmas story? Why would these powerful, wise people, well sought after, very prominent and prosperous over in the East, want to have anything to do with this little unknown people that no longer have any power, the Jews, over here in Bethlehem or Israel? And why would they even have any desire to come and, and pay any kind of homage to this, this impoverished little child that has just been born into the earth. What's the connection from pagan people to true worshipers? Well, the connection would be Daniel. Because Daniel was one of the Jews, a young noble that was taken into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. Dan, Daniel was a faithful, well-educated man. And he was a devout worshiper of God. And you would know Daniel as the one who, rather than bow before the king, which would have been like bowing before an idol, faced a den of lions to be faithful to the one and only true God and lived to tell about it. So Daniel was actually brought up kind of in the king's court. So he rubbed shoulders with the king's people, including the wise men. And Daniel was a wise person himself because he knew Scripture. Not only, as we will shortly see, did he hear from God, literally, but he also was wise because of God's written revelation. He studied it. He knew it and he lived by it and conducted his life by it and looked at the world through its lens. So... The king really liked Daniel as well, I guess, as his other wise men. But he liked Daniel. He saw the potential in him. There came a time where the king had this very, very disturbing dream. And he wanted to know what it meant. And so he summoned his magi, his wise men, to himself. And he says, I want you to tell me my dream. And I want you to interpret what my dream knows so I can know it. I have this sneaky suspicion that whatever it is, it's very, very important. So it's really eating at him. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 10, the, the magi or the wise men respond this. 
The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. So the king hears that and he gets angry and he says, Okay, I'm done with you. Guards, round up all the wise men in the kingdom and put them to death. They're worthless. They can't even tell me what my dream means. And he didn't give him his dream first because I think even he knew that they would twist things and make it sound like what he wanted to hear. He wanted the truth. Daniel is one of those wise men. So Daniel basically is on death row with this announcement. And so he prays to God. And God grants Daniel the dream and the interpretation And Daniel goes and shares it with the king, saves his own life, saves the day, in essence. Years later, the king's son, now the king, Belshazzar, he has also an experience that is very troubling to him. And he is hosting a huge party in his palace. And suddenly, out of nowhere, a hand appears before him and writes something on the wall. And you can imagine, if that happened to you, you would be really curious, what does this unusual appearance mean? And what do these words or symbols on the wall mean? And kings, you know, and people in power, they kind of want to know things and they want to know them right now. They're not used to be, they're not used to having to wait for things. But he's very troubled because he thinks, I'll never know what has been written. But then he receives this advice in Daniel chapter 5, verse 11, by one of his colleagues. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him, speaking of Daniel, chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, And astrologers. In other words, Daniel became the main most magi, if you will. He was the wisest of the wise. That's how he had worked his way up through the ranks, just by being right, by giving good counsel. And so they all rubbed shoulders. They met together. They weren't all believers, obviously. They they had their different faiths and different uh, modes of gaining knowledge. And, so, and, and Daniel obviously wasn't in favor of all that. But because he was employed by the king, they all met. Just like you go to the workplace and you work together with people that aren't un, uh, unbelievers. But you're trying to find solutions to problems. And you all bring different things to the table. Well, Daniel brought his faith to, ta- to the table. Daniel brought his wisdom of God's word to the table and how life really works and how we can really know things. And so they're all hearing this from him. And it is believed that as he rubs shoulders with them, that some of them seeing the wisdom of it and sharing the prophecies where Daniel would show. And here's how this one was fulfilled. And this one's yet to be fulfilled. Many believe that Daniel won some of the wise men over either in whole or at least in part to the wisdom of the God of scripture. So through the years there were the magi that kept their priestly order and among them was 
knowledge of Scripture. And it's believed that some of that was maintained and that some of them through the years were actually like a Jewish person would. were looking to God and looking for signs of fulfillment of God's word because they believed it. And so by God's sovereign hand, about 600 years in advance, which is when Daniel lived, as opposed to when Christ was born, here is. The sovereign God working in the affairs of man, working in politics, working in palaces, working among peasants, working his plan so that when Christ was born, this this very powerful moment that would acknowledge or recognize the deity and royalty of Christ would take place. All of this was just slowly brewing by the sovereign hand of God. Of God. And so in the Christmas story, here come the Magi. Here they come seeking, looking for this king because they want to worship him as deity. And so they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. What a beautiful moment in history that proclaims the sovereignty of God and the royalty of Christ because God controls history. God has a plan for everyone and everything. And whether we bow to him or not, Jesus is king. And that's what Matthew wants us to know. Jesus is king. But what I want to spend the remainder of our time on this morning is the gifts, what the wise men brought. Because when they came, they had something in mind. They had already determined what they're going to do when they find this king. And we know that they worshipped him. They gave him gifts. I think appropriate gifts, as we'll see. Now, during Christmas time, there's such a thing as inappropriate gifts that just really fall flat. I read about a man that uh, bought his wife snow tires for Christmas. And another man that bought his wife a monogrammed chainsaw for Christmas. And I think that probably fell pretty flat, and I doubt any romance was revved up from those kind of gifts. But I want to consider these fitting gifts that the wise men brought because their, their symbolism is very, very powerful and enlightening. Consider these and we'll look at what they represent so we can be thinking about how God would have us honor him, how God would have us honor his son this Christmas. The first gift is gold. By the way, this is mentioned in Scripture. We do know that this took place because we just read about it in Matthew's Gospel. So they arrive, they open up their treasures, they travel with treasures, they're wealthy people, prominent people, and out of their treasury comes this gift of gold, and they present the gift of gold to Jesus. Of course, gold. In that day, like it is today, it is a very precious metal. 
I mean, it's, it's costly. It's expensive. Maybe some of you are feeling that as a result of perhaps a Christmas gift you bought somebody this Christmas. It, it represents that of great wealth. And in Bible times, it represented royalty. The kings were worthy of gold. Solomon had his throne uh, encased in gold. And we have, we're still seeing as the, um, the uh, pharaohs are being discovered in the tombs, it's gold upon gold upon gold, gold tombs, sarcophaguses, and, and all kinds of uh, furniture and everything. And the idea is gold is befitting to kings, monarchs, royalty. And so when these wise men came into this humble little setting of a stable or a home or a barn, whatever it is, and see humble, peasant-looking Joseph and Mary, they open their treasure chest and present to this baby in the manger this gift of royalty, gold. And what it represents or symbolizes is baby Jesus's or Jesus's sovereign domain. You are a sovereign. You are worthy to reign and rule. And they are recognizing that. That's something we want to recognize as we celebrate Christmas. We want to bring into our tradition, into our thinking, this idea of Jesus rules over us. He has sovereign domain over me. And in particularly, our wealth. Because the wise men, who really answer to no one, they're kingmakers. They recognize Christ as deity, his sovereignty. They give of him their wealth. He has the right to reign and rule. Isaiah 9, 7 of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Will we offer Christ this Christmas the submission, the treasure of our heart, the treasure of our obedience, the treasure of our wealth? And recognize him and acknowledge him as a sovereign Lord, ruler that he is. That's part of the Christmas message. Well, what, what can I give him today? I can give him something of great material value. In that day it was gold. I don't know that I've ever seen gold in our offering plate. But it is allowed. <laughs> Breaks no rules. To give the king gold. Now think about the wise men. What they're saying is, is we acknowledge you as a sovereign, your sovereign domain, and we are investing in your kingdom. We're, we're helping establish you. We are investing because you are king. We like you as king. We acknowledge you as king. We want you to be as king. We fall under your rule. We are investing in that. And that's what we do with our gifts. With our tithes and our offerings by presenting to God the wealth that he has enabled us to even possess. We are acknowledging this and saying, I want 
to be a part of building this wonderful work that God is in the process of doing. And that's what we're so when personally, what do we do? We make money. We work hard to build our homes, to build our lives, to build families, to build things, to make things happen that we want to see happen. We have dreams. We have ambitions. And when we come and we present our gifts to God, we're saying, I'm in on your dream. I'm in on your vision. I'm in on what you're doing and what you want to build. And I'm willing to give to invest in that because I believe in it and because you deserve it. How ironic is it that in the Old Testament, God only required 10 percent when he deserves all of it. Why don't why doesn't he say bring everything to the storehouse? He deserves it all, but he only required in the Old Testament the 10 percent. So to place our wealth under his rule is to acknowledge that he's king over it. He's king over it. So that's how we show him. Sovereignty over our wealth. We bring our gifts and we'll do that this morning symbolically. Second gift that they brought out of their treasure was frankincense. And what does that symbolize? Well, frankincense was something that um, was produced from certain uh, trees and they would cut the tree. The tree would kind of bleed or weep or a sap like Resin would come out of it and they would collect it. It was kind of an oily resin. They would collect it. They would um, let it dry. And then this would put out a tremendous aroma of a wonderful, of strong people that would most people would appreciate this wealthy, rich aroma that would put out when it was warmed, heated or burned. Frankincense. Very expensive. What did it symbolize? Well, it symbolizes the supreme deity. So the wealth symbolizes the uh, sovereign dominion that Christ has. This symbolizes his supreme deity. And you say, well, I don't read anything about supreme deity in the Christmas story. And we don't know. I honestly don't know what all was going on in the heads of the wise men and how much they understood what was taking place and the significance of their gifts But we know God knows and there is no accidents. And so the gifts that were presented are speaking a message to us in Scripture because God's hand was in all of this. But frankincense was used in the Old Testament as an instrument of worship. So when you smell that aroma, it was a unique aroma and it couldn't just be used for anything. There was a specific sacredness to it. In the worship of God, we find this in Exodus chapter 30. The Lord said, take pure frankincense with these sweet spices. There shall be equal amounts of each. You shall make of these an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure and holy. And you shall heat some of it very fine. Beat some of it very fine. And put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. But as for the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves. According to its composition, it shall be to you holy for the Lord. God saying this recipe, this frankincense, this aroma is only for me and it's only for worship. 
That's when I want to smell the sweet aroma. And that's it. It's sacred. So it has to do with worshiping deity, not just kingship or royalty, but deity. Sacred. Most holy. It's something that is given in worship. And so we have Christ, who is not just a royal king, but he is very God of very God. He is the incarnate God. Absolute equal with God. Deity. And they are recognizing not just his sovereignty, but his deity. You say, well, wait a minute. Um, they, how, how do they do that? Well, they bow down to him. Not just as king. And that Greek word means basically, I don't know that they did this, but the Greek word means to lay on your face before deity. That's how low. It's a recognition. We are not equal with you. We are not on human to human terms. And another reason we know that this represents deity is because when they went to see King Herod, they didn't bow before him. But when they came and saw this little baby with no crown and no royal garb, they fall before him. And one of my favorite jobs, and I've said this, one of the favorite things about job as a pastor is that I get to go and see the newborn babies. I love to do that. And I don't know that I've ever missed one. Maybe it's possible. Maybe somebody snuck one in and I didn't know about it. You hit it well. But if you are 13 or older and you were raised in this church, it's very, very likely that I was there when you were born, either that day or the day close after. I always ask the parents, when's it convenient for me to come? If it's convenient for me to come. And I love to do that. And there's this, who doesn't love a baby? And you you just want to eat them up. You just want to cuddle them. And I got to ask mom and dad's permission. Can I please hold your child? And I don't know that I've ever been... Denied that um, unless there was some kind of sickness or something going on. But and, and you love that and you just want to look at them and you want to be the first to get a smile or you want to be the first to see their eyes open. And there's just this dynamic that happens around infants and babies. And it should because they are so precious as gifts from God. But when the wise men came and saw this precious little, probably giggling, maybe crying or whatever, beating at, batting at the air, infant, they didn't go and say, oh, they went and said, man, that's, that's the deity of Christ. That's bowing down. That's part of the Christmas story. It's part of us Giving the treasure of our heart. We are not on equal plane, Lord. You're God of all gods. And the frankincense was only to be given. You shall worship the Lord God only. Him alone. And that's what we want to do. Get any idols out of our heart that have crept in there. And worship Christ alone. For Christmas. Isaiah 9, 6. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Humanity. And Mighty God. Deity. Because of his supreme deity. I give him 
my worship. And then lastly, well, Christmas is a busy time. As you know, I still have presents to wrap. Lots of presents to wrap. And there's decorations, decorating to do, baking to do, shopping to do, shaking your piggy bank, trying to get more money out of it for Christmas gifts, wondering how you're going to make all this happen. And that's all important, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's a part of it. But let us not forget to bow and worship the Lord. That's what Christmas is really about. And then the last gift, myrrh. What does that symbolize? Well, myrrh is kind of like the frankincense. It comes from a plant or a tree and you, and you cut it and it bleeds this oily resin. And it's used, uh, it's collected. Uh, it, they said it was kind of dried into a block. And it was so incredibly expensive that usually that they would just... You would get shavings off of it. You didn't usually buy the whole block unless you were really loaded. You just got the shavings if you wanted to use it for something. Very, very expensive in its raw form. And it was used as a perfume. It was used as a painkiller. And it was used in the embalming process. So why myrrh? As a gift from the treasury Of these wise men. What might God have in mind? The myrrh is symbolic. Of the sacrificial death. Of Christ. Not sure how much the wise men understood about this. But I do know in Daniel chapter 9 26. Where it talks about the coming of this great Messiah. It also talks about how this Messiah will be cut off. But then he will come again to rule over his people. So perhaps they knew some of this. But this wonderful Christ child was born to die. And you see myrrh come into his life towards the end as he faces the cross. They offered him as he was on the cross in Mark chapter 15. Wine mixed with myrrh. Painkiller. Common painkiller in that day. I guess maybe like taking an aspirin or something. Don't know how effective it was. He refused it. Why? Because he was dying the sacrificial death. He was tasting pain. He was tasting death for you. For his people. He denied it. But it was there. And then after his death in John 19, uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea got his body down And placed him in a tomb. But before that, they got many, many pounds of myrrh and aloe. And the ingredients that go into what? Embalming the body. According to the Jewish custom. And so these wise men brought myrrh to the Christ child. It speaks of his sacrificial death. And so, as we celebrate the cradle... We also want to keep in mind the cross. That's that's what that's the main uh, hub of Christianity. The two greatest events in history are when Christ came and when Christ died. That's in history yet to come is when Christ returns. But in that cradle is a cross. We want to remember that. So we. What shall we give Jesus this Christmas season? We, we give him our gold. We give him 
our wealth. And we also give him our worship. And what might the myrrh represent? Well, we give him our witness. Because as we talk about people, talk with people about the birth of Christ, don't forget, don't forget about the cross. Don't forget to share about the forgiveness. Don't, don't just talk about he came and how wonderful that is. But that Christ child that came, he came to die for the sins of the world. And that's the good news. And he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. So our wealth, our worship, and our witness belong to Christ Jesus this Christmas season. May God bless the preaching of his word. Merry Christmas to you. And uh, Rank's family, Alyssa, if you'd come up, light our Christ candle. And then after that, Josh and Robbie are going to lead us in a time where we just worship and adore the King.